A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. The remedy for boredom has arrived. The People's Podcast is here. And let's go for a ride with Eric Bischoff and Bruce Pritchard. The Monday Night Wars is coming up. And... You lucky you got away with just a scratch, sucker. Somebody's gonna get they ass kicked. Somebody's gonna get they wig split. Somebody's gonna get they ass kicked. Somebody's gonna get they wig split. Beat him up, beat him up, break his neck, break his neck. Beat him up, beat him up, break his neck, break his neck. Beat him up, beat him up, break his neck, break his neck. Beat him up, beat him up, break his neck. Can you dig it? Neck. Don't jive me. Neck. That is unbelievable, man. Neck. When have you ever seen a friendly debate? These guys are friends, but they do get at it a little bit. There might be a little wig splitting tonight on the great Monday Night Wars debate with Eric Bischoff, who was running WCW at the time, and Bruce Pritchard, who was working creative, one of the right-hand men, the inner circle of Vince McMahon and the WWE at the time. I moderated the debate, which took place in Philadelphia before this year's Royal Rumble. We kept things civil. We kept things like gentlemen. We had a lot of great stories and a ton of laughs. Very, very entertaining stuff. I've uh, picked some of the highlights. This debate went about two hours. I got it down to about 60 minutes, along with my amazing producer, Stacey Para, helping out with the editing. You are going to love this. You're also going to love Wise Cousin Chad talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the greatest Yoko Ono story ever. And speaking of greatest, have you checked out my new Comedy Central web series, Nothing to Report? Have you heard it? Have you seen it? If you haven't watched it, you guys need to check it out with the amazing Team Tiger Awesome. They're on Talk is Jericho. If you heard them and haven't watched the show, go to YouTube and type in Nothing to Report. We're at over 600,000 views total and growing, and I guarantee you'll laugh out loud. Even more importantly, if the if the views keep on growing, keep on accruing, we will do more of these. So it's up to you. If you guys make this a hit, make this a success, we will be doing more Nothing to Reports. It's already been discussed. If the views keep on going up. If you want to help me out, 
watch this show. It takes five minutes of your time to watch episode one. If you like it, then you watch episode two. If you want to start out with my favorite episode, that's Emotional Scars. My second favorite episode is The Shootout. So go check out one of those two. If you like either one, keep on rolling. Nick Mundy, Clint Gage, Michael Truly on Team Tiger Awesome would appreciate it as well. We, we had them on Talk as Jericho last week. So many great shenanigans that took place during the three-night guerrilla warfare film shoot. Please go check out those episodes on YouTube. Uh, and please also check me out May 10th, right after SmackDown on the WWE Network. It's Jericho versus Stephanie McMahon. More of the same. If you like the Cena interview, you're going to love the, the Stephanie interview. If you didn't like it, then don't bother showing up. I am not Oprah. I'm not Barbara Wawa. I'm Chris Jericho, man. I'm a disciple of Johnny Carson. And Stephanie and I are going to have a lot of fun. All right. And speaking of fun, wise cousin Chad and myself had a blast at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, and we're going to talk about it right now. All right, so I'm here with uh, Wise Cousin Chad making his, well, kind of podcast debut. Last year, um, you were sitting in on the Paul Heyman Edge podcast uh, on the eve of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and here we are in Cleveland after going again. Hello, Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland, for the second year in a row. Uh, we had a great time tonight, man. It was amazing. Yeah, it's uh, wow, crazy to see two Beatles in one room performing. Yeah. That was a- well. So, so let's just back up. A bit. Okay. So we get um, we we know we know this girl called Betsy Hill. She works for Rolling Stone magazine, and she hooked us up last year to uh, go to the after party for the Rock and Hall of Fame in New York where we got to hang out, and I use that term loosely because he had no idea who we were, uh, Springsteen and uh, Bill Murray, uh, Oates. Lordy. <laughs> Lordy. <laughs> and, your, and your friend. Oh, uh, oh, oh, Rita Wilson. Yes, that's right. My buddy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we were really loaded last year, uh, and this year um, – it was no different. Had a couple couple cocktails. Went over to the show, and they gave us uh, Rita. Or sorry, Rita. Um, Betsy gave us a wristband to hang out on the floor, but we had no table, <laughs> so we were running around like fourteen year old kids, like in a teen comedy, avoiding the security because we were allowed to be in the downstairs area. We just had nowhere to go. So we couldn't get kicked out of the floor area, but we could. Uh... But we had to get moved along. Like, don't stand against the wall. Don't stand over here. Don't stand over there. So we were constantly like avoiding the 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 popo on the floor to keep moving. So um, and it's so crazy when you go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because there's just like people everywhere. Like you know, oh, there's Dave Grohl. Hey, there's Taylor Hawkins, and we're standing right next to Anton Fig, and there's Paul Schaefer, and there's like this guy, and there's that guy because they're just all over. You put, the, you, you put your head down, and then you look, oh, Stevie Wonder just walked by. Oh, yeah. no big deal. <laughs> I was like, dude, it's Stevie Wonder, it's Stevie Wonder. So we're walking around, and, and start, you know, Joan Jett kicks it off, and she kills it, and it's great. But, but once again, there's like speeches that go so long. I think the first hour was taken up by Joan Jett. It's like, this, this is a long freaking night. Yeah, it was... Uh, when you were in for a long one, and if you're getting moved along and have nowhere to sit, it's, it's a long one. But that's the fun of it. That's we're the used fun to of that. It. So we go, and this is totally coincidental. And, and and you and I are huge Beatle fans. And George's wife was there too. I forgot to tell you that. 
so John, uh, sorry, uh, Ringo and Paul were there, and George's wife was there. I didn't even see. Yes, yeah, she was, and Yoko Ono was there. So we're in the bathroom, and this guy comes in and goes, "Clear, okay, well, you tell, I'll tell it from my end, and then you tell it from your end. Well, you tell it first. Well, there's a bunch, there's there's a bunch of us in the bathroom in the urinals, and a guy comes in and he's like, "Oh, hurry up, move it along, guys. Yoko's coming in." And I thought he was joking, right? And I said, "Oh, well, that'll break us up." And uh, <laughs> Yoko broke up. Wise cousin Chad and Chris. <laughs> so guys, clear out. I thought I just thought he was joking. So I'm, I head back to uh, to wash my hands, and I I look, and at the door, it's Yoko, and uh, with a whole bunch of a lineup behind her, and and they're holding her at the door. So I'm looking at her, and I said, I I couldn't believe it. I thought he was joking. So I'm, I'm washing my hands, and there's no uh, there's no towels. So I, uh, I just why I said, don't worry. Oh, I, I'm moving along. Don't worry. Uh, we'll get you in here right away. And, oh no, no, it's okay. So I, I wash and I, I, I look for the blow dryer and I blow it, dry my hands, and then I, I go uh, back to her and I said, well, it's okay. I, it's all clear now, <laughs> and I leave. So then, so then from my end, same thing. I'm in the bathroom and I've already gone, I've gone, gone pee, and. Uh, the guy comes in. He goes, I got Yoko coming in. And everyone's like, hi. He goes, no, I'm serious. I got Yoko coming in. So everyone's like, oh, we better get out of here. So they leave. And the guy, the security guy walks around the corner. So he's out of like the little area that I'm in. So I pull like the, once again, every teen comedy ever, every teen comedy ever. I go into the stall. I lock the door and I crouch on the toilet. Like I put both of my feet on the toilet seat so they can't see my feet, right? <laughs> And I lock it, and then I hear some talking, and of course, you know Yoko Ono's voice. If, if anyone knows anything about the Beatles, you hear that voice instantaneously. You know who it is. And she comes in, it goes to the stall on my left, and her friend or whatever goes to the stall on my right. And I hear them talking, and for some reason, they never tried to go to the stall in the middle, which is where I was in. Well, they want to pee next to each other. I guess not. It must be a, a thing. So I hear them talking. It's like, oh, okay. like this is not what she's saying, but like, okay, I go pee now. Okay, I'm I'm going to this stall, and you go to this stall. Like they're talking small talk. I don't remember what it was because I'm literally crouching on the toilet, and I've just watched Detroit Rock City where the guy does that, and then the toilet breaks, and then all the water shoots up like a geyser, and I'm like, oh my god, if this happens right now, this is gonna be the worst. So they finished going pee, and it was pee. I I heard Yoko Ono go pee. So there you go. And I saw her dress, like the black part of her dress. And they leave and go out and start washing their hands. Okay, so now I leave. I open up the door and I walk out the door. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I thought this was the boys' bathroom. She goes, it is boys' bathroom. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I Am I in the right place? She goes, no, no this is boys' bathroom. And I'm like, oh, hey, Yoko. She's like, hello. So I <laughs> wash my hands. I'm wondering where you are, by the way, because <laughs> <laughs> and there's no towels, like you said. So they've they've given Yoko a stack of napkins, and I'm like washing my hands, and then there's no towels, and I'm like, oh, there's no towels. She goes, here, here's a towel, and she gives me a napkin, like she's she's <laughs> mothering me now. And I'm like, thanks, Yoko, thank you. And she's super short, like very very tiny yeah, woman tiny. wearing a big giant white like floppy hat. And it's like, this, like you know, Yoko's giving me a towel. And so I go aside, and you're standing there, and then all the people that are held up in line are allowed in after that. And, like, we're shaking, and we're like, 
you know, slapping hands. We just met Yoko. This is great. And then, of course, we have to go hide somewhere. Next standing spot so we don't get, uh, so we don't get move, kicked out. Move along. So then the next thing was when Green Day's playing, and Green Day was, was great, uh, I maneuver myself. Because whenever the crowd was standing, we could go walk around because nobody would know that we don't have a table hoping that they don't sit down. So when yeah. Green Day was playing, you and I walk over, and my mission was I'm going to go stand next to Ringo and Paul, who are sitting at the same table beside each other. And I do that. And you're, and I'm like, dude, they're right there. And you're like, well, I go look to your right, very subtly, keep the camera down, and Paul and Ringo are sitting right there. And how cool was that to like be standing right next to the Beatles? Well, you know, and I'm, and I'm standing there. You don't realize it. You're just standing around. It's, you're, you're at a concert. You're standing around people. But when you stop and when you look around... And who you're surrounded by. Yeah. It's right across the table. So I was at the backside of one of the tables. And right across from me, Joan Jett turns around and looks. And she <laughs> just like nods her head and just gives a... She's rocking. She's yeah. rocking, right? And I look beside Joan. And she's loving it. And Green Day killed it. They killed it. They were great. Um, you know, you look beside her. It's Gary Clark Jr. And then you look beside. And it's Grohl and Hawkins and... Um, yeah. And you're, you're looking around you. And then there's beside Chris is McCartney and Ringo and... Like, where am I? That's <laughs> right. And, and, and I'm like, I've met Dave Grohl before at the Golden Gods, and I'm totally ignoring him just to look more at Paul and Ringo. And I didn't even say hi to Dave, and I'm sure Dave would have been super nice, but we're rocking to Green Day, and I'm not there to, you know, I'm at a show at a concert. I don't want to, like, talk to anybody. I just want to watch the show. And Dave's probably the same, and we're watching Green Day, and Green Day, I think, was maybe at the, uh, I'm going to say it was Basket Case. Or maybe it was uh, American Idiot. Even American Idiot was the what first is Hey, and I look over. McCartney's like going, "Hey!" and he's like raising his hand in the air with the rest of the fans. Hey, and I'm like, "This is great!" I'm like rocking the Green Day with Paul McCartney. So then Paul leaves, and I hear him kind of talking, like, "I got to go to the toilet," and I start walking that way. But go on the outside kind of line of uh, attack as Paul goes on the right side. I'm on the left. He's on the right. And so I just time it so we happen to meet in the middle. And it's just me and Paul. And I'm like, he, and he's got a security guard in front of him. I'm like, hey, Paul, I'll watch your back. He goes, oh, uh, thanks. I got a guy in front of me. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll be your back security. He goes, no problem. Okay, sounds good, man. And I'm like, Green Day was awesome. He goes, yeah, they were great. And I go, high five, Paul, and give Paul a high five. And he goes, all right, have a good night. High five, and, and then he walks away, and then I'm just flipping out like, oh, my gosh. And I said, come here, come here, come here. And we walk outside to the hallway. And I'm like, dude. Get a breath. I just high five Paul McCartney. It's like a kind of a religious experience. You peed with Yoko, sort of. Yeah, I which did. Which sounds weird. No, I peed with her. You peed with Yoko, and then you uh, high five McCartney. High five, McCartney, and and then uh, so the night goes on, and it's you know it's a long night, but it's you know the Stevie Ray Vaughan thing was super cool. Some of the uh, inductees, it was like okay, you're standing there, we're, we're respectful of everybody, but then Ringo comes on, and Paul, and Paul inducts Ringo, and then we're like, they start playing their set, and we go right to the front. So I'm like, what do they do? Kick us out? They can't kick us out now. No, we we just don't have a table. Big deal, right? And it's like if they kick us out, fine. We we're at the end of the night, so we watch the set. And it's like, what do they even play? Oh, they started with boys, right? Oh, they started with boys. Uh, and then photograph. Oh, and then Paul, did Paul come out for photograph? No, he came out for, uh, with a little help for my friends, right? Oh, okay, yeah. so they did boys, photograph, 
the or they might have just done boys. Did they even do photographs? Jeez. I think they did boys with little help from my friends, and that's when Paul came out and like Joe Walsh, who's Ringo's brother in law, by the way. I didn't yeah, even realize it. And then of course okay. Dave Grohl and everybody. They do with little help from my friends, and then they do I Wanna Be Your Man. Oh yeah, that's right. Which that's was right. great. And it was yeah, the re- it's it's hard to remember because you're um you know like, you're so into it. You're so into it. And then you know, there was some breaks with uh, you know, Rigging up the equipment, getting the you oh know, yeah. There's on. a lot of changeover. There was that changeover, took a while. right? So, but I guess because there's so many musicians on stage, yeah, ton. Like ton. I want to be your man was the big finale. There must have been 15 people on stage, yeah. And I'm standing right in front of Paul and Ringo, and so are you, yeah. Right like there. we're watching the freaking Beatles. Yeah, man. I had a glass of uh, a Pinot Noir. <laughs> <laughs> so we watch that, and we're flipping out, and then we go to the after party. Betsy takes us there. Yeah. And we walk in, and we're just hanging around. And it's like last year, like I said, all these guys are there: Springsteen and Oates. Oates, you got to meet Oates, and you look kind of the same. Yeah, was, you're like you're like a 25 year years younger Oates. And two 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 chicks come up to me and say, "Can we get can we get our picture with you?" Oh, yesterday. Yeah, last they night. They thought you were Oates. Well, I'm like, yeah, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know, you want a picture with an engineer? Awesome. <laughs> And then she said after the photo, she's like, oh, congratulations last year. I'm like, for what? <laughs> she thought you were Oates. Oh, brutal. So we're hanging around. And, of course, we look over to our left, and there he is, Paul McCartney. And he's hanging out. And a bunch of people are going up to him and asking him for pictures. And I didn't want to do that. You know, yeah, we were no. standing there debating. It's like, that's bullshit because he's hanging out with his wife. Yeah. And... um I just did not want to ask him for a picture. Like last year, I railroaded Springsteen and taking a picture where <laughs> I said, take the camera. You'll have one second. When I turn around, take a picture. And I walked towards Springsteen. And as I got there, I turned around and I looked at the camera. You took the picture. Me and Bruce are standing there in the picture. <laughs> I didn't want to do that with Paul. Yeah, I know. And I went up to him again. I'm like, hey, Paul, uh, uh, you know, you're all right. Do you, need, do you need some help? I'll clear all these people away. He goes, who are you? <laughs> I go, I'm just trying to help out, man. I said, I'm here with your wife, and I know that you want to uh, have a good time, so I don't want anyone to bug you. He goes, what are you, 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 you're acting like the security, but you're really probably the cameraman. I'm like, no, man, no picture. I don't want anything. I just want you to have fun. He goes, all right, I appreciate that. If I need your help, I'll let you know, <laughs> a.k.a. get the hell out of here, you idiot. Who is this dummy that keeps asking Twice me? Twice I've run into this Twice, guy. Twice, you know. So... um and I was like, I, I just, I, I was, we were standing around for a bit and I was going to, we were going to, you were going to ask him for a picture or, or my big thing was I'm going to ask him what his favorite little Richard song is. Like, I want to ask him for a time to like pop yeah, in, like, right? He's having a conversation with someone and he's talking to Steven Van, Steve, little, Steve, little Stevie. Oh, Stevie that's right. Van little Zandt, Steven, yeah. Right. Yeah, is that yeah. this guy's name? Stevie Van Zandt? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So yeah, he's, <laughs> he's talking to Steve Van Zandt and then he's talking to uh, Tommy Shondell who I talked to because no one knew who Tommy Shundell was but me, guy who, sing, who wrote Crimson and Clover, which is a Crimson and Clover. Who played, and, and it was over. awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. So, um, and then freaking Billy Joe Armstrong. Comes up to us. Comes yeah. up to you, not yeah. me. <laughs> hey, Chad. Hey, hey, How's hey, the oil business? Oh, what's going on? How <laughs> things price of oil sucks. Yeah, I know, Billy. Yeah, why, why is cousin Chad is a uh, is an oil engineer? So yeah, Billy comes up to me of all things to tell me that he saw me on that metal show. Yeah, and I'm like, dude, you just got inducted in the Rock Hall of Fame. That's what he goes. Oh, he was super, super yeah. nice. Him and his wife were 
really chatting nice. for a long time with us, right? Yeah, a long time. Yeah. Just about, they were asking about Fozzie, and I said, dude, I got Do You Want to Start a War from a Green Day song from the beginning of Holiday on the live record. He goes, Do You Want to Start an Effing War? And I was like, Yes, I do. That's a great song title. Yeah, he loved that. Because he was asking about Rich, and yeah, he, yeah, he loved that. And he said, But your guitar player is great, and he was so, he was so awesome. And so we talked for a bit, and then uh, Mike Durnt was there, and I was like, Congratulations to you. And he's like, Ah, oh, thanks. Thank you so much, man. It's so great. And then you, who did you talk to? Jeez, who did I talk to? Um, oh, jeez. Yeah, my uh, Johnny Varvatos was there. <laughs> and you're a total fashion plate, yeah. and you, I'm like a big Varvatos fan. I'm a huge Varvatos fan. I, I've been buying his stuff for a long time, and I've run into him a couple times at he would have gigs at the Bowery, right, where CBGB's was, right, and he would have live shows. I was there um, a couple years ago. I just happened to be in New York for business, and I got invited. You get these invites to go to these shows. You're never there, right? Right. It's like it's like a, you know people inviting people to a wedding. They're hoping they they say no, right? But you know it's just nice. <laughs> yeah, you actually show up. <laughs> but you know I'm like, oh, I'm there. So my sister Brittany was there with me, and we went to go see. Les Zeppelin, Les Zeppelin. Oh, the female Zeppelin tribute. Which Les was, Zeppelin was great. Great name. I wonder if they're really lesbians. No. Okay. I asked. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a great gig. So, um, and he was standing next to me there because it's a small venue. It's 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 great. So anyway, I go up to him and I just, you know, just I, I told him, please don't ever go out of business because if you do, all the good good advice. I don't know uh, what I'm gonna wear. And <laughs> he lies like I've never heard that before. And I'm like, how do you even know who John Vervados is? Like he come up and slap me in the face, I wouldn't know who it is. Oh, and he, and he's super cool, and he's 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 a you know he's a huge music fan. It's almost like he knows uh, with his campaigns every year who's, who's going to get into inducted. the Hall of Fame. Yeah, because last year you know Kiss was uh, doing the Dress to That's Kill right. um, campaign, and this year it's Ringo, and it's you know. It's probably yeah, coincidence, right? But Ringo was not at the after party, nope. by the way. He was no, not. Ringo. It's not Taylor Hawkins was there. Yeah, so Varvatos. Yeah, uh, Varvatos. Robbie Robertson. Robbie Robertson. Tom Morello, out. who we didn't want to talk to because he he big leagued us last year. Yeah, we don't the, need to last talk to Morello. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've met Tom a few times. And I went to say hi to him last year, and he like, acted like he had no idea who I was, which could be the case. But, yeah, we were just looking at this year going, nah, we're not even going to talk to Morello. Morello, you snob. Morello's a snob. And Robertson's, you know, at a booth by himself. Should we go talk to him? He looks lonely. And I'm like, do we even have anything to say to him? Like, who cares? Like, well, I'm not yeah. a, I'm not a fan of the band, but he's still Robbie Robertson. And then I, I finally get up enough nerve to go talk to McCartney. I'm like, Paul, let me ask you a question. And he just walks past me. <laughs> well, they were on their way out. They, they were on their way out. I'm, like, I'm not sure he actually really heard me anyway. The exit was happening. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask him, you know, my big question, what's your favorite Little Richard song? Like, that's all I had. That, that's all I got. <laughs> but, you know, we really – you freeze, right, with him. Like everyone else, it's, it's, it's fine. But with him, you don't want to – Well, and I wasn't really freezing. I just didn't want to – I wanted to talk to him. But I didn't want to be, hey, Paul, just wanted to say thank you. Like, I didn't want to fanboy out. I'm like, I was like, hey, dude, what's up? Like, I'm going to be just cool with him because I know, like, the less of a freak you are, the more natural it is and the cooler it is. Like, we talked to Paul Schaefer oh, for sh- about yeah. five, ten minutes. Like, he was super nice. Yeah, he was. And I mean, I've done uh, Jimmy Fallon with Paul before. So it's not like I just met him cold, but he didn't just go, hey, man, how's it going? Like, we actually talked to him. Yeah, and he's, you know, well, once you find out you're Canadian, yeah, we I'm get Canadian, the you know, then yeah, you start yeah, talking, exactly, right, exactly. Canadian stuff, which is very exciting. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and then we we're like, you know, we should just, let's just go. Like, let's not make fools of ourselves. Let's get out of here before we've overstayed our welcome. Yeah. Because apparently there was another, like, party in the, uh, like, at the Hard Rock that Joe Jett was having and Grohl was there. And we're like, you know what? We've had, we've had our fill. Like, we had a great time. Uh, and basically, 
no matter what you want to say, talk to Paul McCartney twice. Yeah. And, you know. And didn't, and didn't, you know, you don't want to ruin it too. You don't want to, like you said, you know, you don't want to yeah. get into a weird situation where you're like, wow, that was really bad. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, you think of Paul in a certain way. You hear about him on that Chris Hardwick uh, interview. Podcast, it's right. The podcast, right? The Nerdist had a great McCartney I was going to ask him about that. That was going to be my icebreaker. Like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, when I get a chance to talk to him, yeah. I'll bring that up first. There's so much going on, though, right? You know, everyone and everyone well, wants, and a, everyone piece wants a piece of him. Yeah. Right. And, it, and he was taking a lot of pictures with a lot of people. And you could tell. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, you hear the interview about what he thinks about that. He's like, I don't I don't. He doesn't wanna... like that. Yeah, That's right. Like pictures, right? So... That's a good point. He said that then he becomes that guy. Yeah. He, he wants to just talk. And, and that's, you know, it, like I said, for what it's worth for me, he knew me as the weird guy who wanted to be his security guard, <laughs> which I could have whipped everybody's ass in the place if, if he wanted me to. If he would have said, Chris, kill, I would have went, okay, I fight for you, McCartney. I fight for you. So um, I wonder if he thought I was like the guy that's just like eyeing down an opportunity to get in. He's like, oh, God. You know, he's got he thought his spidey sense was tingling. He probably. He thought, oh, who is, why is Oates following me around? <laughs> Eating all that sausage, <laughs> trying to kill oh, time. Gosh. <laughs> I woke up this. Yeah. It's just, anyways, man, it was, uh, I think. Um, I think this year's was better than last year's because we were right in the game. Like, last year's was fun. It was awesome seeing Kiss get in and seeing Nirvana. But this year, like, kind of going from table to table with nowhere to go. The servers really got to know us. Libby. Libby. Libby loved us. Love Libby. And Carrie. Thanks to Libby and Carrie at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the the servers. Drinks were full. kept bringing us drinks. And we're like, then they basically knew that we had nowhere to go. Yeah. And then thanks to Betsy, she would bump into us. She goes, I don't want to sit at the tables to sit at because everybody there is, is like boring. <laughs> I'd rather sit and hang out with you guys. So anyways, man, great time. We got to go to the bathroom with Yoko, uh, give a high five to Paul, hang out with Paul, and uh, Billy J. Armstrong came to talk to us. And rock out to like, you know, bands and, and you look around and who are you? You're rocking out with other Jimmy musicians. Vaughn. We got to say thanks to Jimmy, Jimmy Vaughn. Jimmy was awesome. That's the last Ray's guy brother. at the end of the night. Yeah. yeah. He was super cool. I met Jerry Lee Lewis's sister-in-law. <laughs> uh, you know, she's just, this was before the thing. She's standing there in the lobby of the West and, and just started talking to me. Yeah. Cause and you're then, very friendly. People come to you. I just to talk. like talking to people, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, I must be approachable. <laughs> and she starts and I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? And then he comes out of the, out yeah, they the push him out in the wheelchair. It's Jerry Lee Lewis, and it's like there he is, and she and, just, and she goes out in the in the limo with him. Yeah, it and, was, yeah, it's crazy. And you know, I felt bad because she's like saying, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm just waiting for uh, for Jerry. We're gonna go to the uh, you know to this ceremony." I'm like, "Dude, it's just around the corner. Like, you could just walk. Like, why do you, why do you need a yeah. car?" And then I I didn't realize Jim, you know Jerry was in a wheelchair, right? Well, yeah, I mean he is like eighty. So. And then and then we walk there with the red carpet was hilarious. Oh too. yeah, I went to the red carpet. <laughs> There's like a whole row of people taking pictures and half of them knew who I was and were snapping pictures. And the other half were just like, when you do the red carpet, it's like, look over here, look over here, look over here, look over here. And I get to the second half and no one's saying a word. And then you kind of just stand around like, Hey man, Chad, ready to go. Let's go. <laughs> like slowly. Like, does anyone want my picture? Like, it's so awkward yeah. when you go to a red carpet where half the people know you and the other half have no idea and could care less. And there's like a ton of fans and like same thing, half like Jericho, Jericho, and like in the back of my head, I'm like, can someone please start a Y2J chant? Like, if they're <laughs> ever gonna do that, can you please do it now? And of course, nobody did. <laughs> I just wanted to leave you hanging on that red carpet for a while, <laughs> see what happened. That's great. I was saying, like, you know, as 
as popular as I am, quote unquote, in certain areas, there's other segments of society that have no idea who I am. And that was the yin and yang. There'd be 10 people like Jericho, 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 Jericho. And then 10 people going, oh, excuse me, sir, you have to move along. You can't stand here. You don't have the proper pass. But I'm Chris Jericho, you know. Yeah. <laughs> who? <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I think it was a, it was a great experience. And uh, this should be a yearly tradition for us. It was awesome. And you know, missed Adam this time around. We did. Next time we'll bring hey, uh, Adam. Edge. Next time Adam will yeah. come. We send him some pictures. There would have been lots of laughs. And he was mad at us. Uh, so, you know, I, I think maybe uh, – Next year we should go again, and maybe we can invite Paul. He has, I'll be his security. Uh, we'll, invite, we'll invite Paul, Billy Joe Armstrong, and Yoko, Yumi, and Adam. That'll be the gang that goes to next year's Perfect. Hall of Fame. Perfect gang. I think we'll have a blast, actually. <laughs> All right. Thanks to Wise Cousin Chad. Had an amazing time at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, listening to Yoko Ono P, giving a high five to Paul McCartney, uh, probably annoying him a little bit. In, in trying not to be an annoying fan, I think I was in the other direction. So I apologize to Sir Paul. And if I ever meet him, I won't even bring it up unless he recognizes me but i will get him on this podcast someday i told you i'd get paul stanley i did someday paul mccartney's my next target on my list uh billy joe armstrong too i even discussed having him on the show and uh, no one's called me back from their office as of yet but i never ever give up so excited about the uh the hall of fame and wise cousin chad he's uh, he's my little brother we've been friends ever since we were babies and uh along with his uh, little brother todd little todd out in edmonton What's the, what's the good word, Todd? All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas, see? Already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. This this is Talk is Jericho. All right, let's get into it. The Monday Night Wars debate with Eric Bischoff versus Bruce Pritchard with myself moderating. So what was the mindset in starting Nitro and putting it up against Raw? Because at the time, that was a, a suicidal move, a lot of people thought, because Raw was WWE, and it was huge, and WCW was the real redheaded stepchild second place uh, company at that point in time. You know, I'd, I'd like to take credit for the one having made the decision to go head-to-head with WWE because that, that was a ballsy move. Uh, but I, it had nothing to do with me or my strategy or, or my mindset, quite frankly. 
it was really uh, a decision that Ted Turner made uh, spontaneously, as far as I was concerned, um, to put WCW right up against Raw. And so that was Turner's of, idea? It was Ted Turner's idea. So, because he owned the network, he's the one that, that was able to do that and, and make the decision. So he's telling you then, Eric, we're going to put this show on head-to-head. What was your thought, thought about that? I grabbed, you know, I just, you know, I, I originally, I, I, I was in a meeting with Ted Turner and Scott Sassa, who is the head of all of the networks um, at the time, and Harvey Schiller, who was my boss. And about 30 seconds into that meeting, Ted immediately looked me in the eye and said, Eric, what's it going to take to get uh, WCW competitive with WWE? I used to box. I, I, I learned in boxing that when you're getting your ass kicked, tuck your chin and put your hands up, you know, defend yourself. And my way of doing that was just to basically stutter and say, ah, oh, what would we do? We would, uh, I don't know, get prime time. Because we are Saturday night, 6 o'clock. Next thing I know, that was the mandate. Ted looked at Scott Sasses and said, Scott, give Eric two hours or three hours, whatever it was, every Monday night. <laughs> Shit. Now what do I do? Damn. <laughs> so, Bruce, what are you thinking when you hear about this? Well, to that point, I mean, you do have Ted Turner there who owns the network, owns several networks, and he wants to be competitive with his WCW against WWF. He could have picked any night of the week and won it. He went head-to-head with our primetime programming. On Monday night, where we were established, where we had been established for many years on the USA Network. So from our standpoint, it it was a declaration of war. It wasn't, well, I want to be competitive. I want to be on primetime with my wrestling program. Let's go on Thursday night. Let's go on Tuesday night, Wednesday, any other night of the week. He had because he owned the network and he could put anything on that he wanted to put on at any given time. Steady chose head to head. So yeah, it was it was a declaration of war. We didn't look didn't look at it too kindly, other than they were attempting to take an audience that we had built. So Eric, you know that you have your start date of uh, I believe it's September 11th, 1995. Did you guys know that, that this was the start date? Was it, was it uh, promoted for a couple months before? You know, I, honestly, I don't recall. I, I know that we I picked... Do. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Bruce. It was promoted heavily, and, the, and it was a very strategic date to start because we were preempted for the Westminster Dog Show for two weeks. You go to Minneapolis for the first Nitro, which is strange because, not strange, but WCW was a, a kind of a southern thing. And, and what was the mindset to go to the Mall of America, of all places, to do the first Nitro? And what did you want to do with this first show? In accordance with being different. And I literally, I made a list of every possible way we could be different than the WWF. And unfortunately, WCW... Prior to Nitro, we couldn't draw flies if we you know, rolled our product in horseshit. It, we just couldn't draw. You'd be put on a show, you'd be lucky if two or three hundred people showed up for free. So we knew we needed to have an audience. It had to be a, a great, different-looking backdrop with a good crowd. And it was a risk, but we thought, you know, if we do a show for the Mall of America, I knew visually it was going to look great because it's like three or four stories up and the ring was going to be in the center. And at least it would look different than your typical arena show with dim lighting and 300 people and 200 of them are carrying brown paper bags. (laughs) (laughs) 
or straight vodka. <laughs> uh, so the big, the, the, I remember the first thing being was the fact that it's the first Nitro, and, and Bruce, I'm sure you guys are watching intently, and what happens but out walks Lex Luger. That was the first shot across the, you know, the, the, the shot across the bow. How did you get Luger? How did you keep it a secret? Did you know he was going to be there? Let's talk about, about the, the first real kind of Monday Night Wars acquisition. Um, how did we get Luger? You know, he, he had been in WCW for a long time, went to the WWF, um, wasn't happy there, wasn't working out for him. I don't even remember what the reason was why he wanted to come back, but he did. And Sting actually came to me and tried to convince me to, to bring him back. And it, the truth is, I've said this before, and, um, I didn't really appreciate Lex Luger much. I didn't like him. That's the best. I, I don't want to say things too negative, but I really didn't like him. I didn't think he had much value as a character because he'd been around before, and I was really reluctant to bring him in. But Sting kept working me over, working me over, working me over. So finally, I, I brought him in. I offered him like twenty percent of what he was making when he left WCW. I gave him a short-term contract, very short-term, and I was actually hoping he would turn it down because I really didn't want him there. But I also wanted to support Stay and, and take a chance. So we did. As far as keeping it a secret, you know, it's. I was surprised, really. The only three people that knew about it was Sting and myself and Lex, and maybe Lex told his wife or his lawyer, but that was about it. Well, personally, I was in Hong Kong, so I, I didn't get to watch it live. And we were shooting on, back in the States, they were shooting the open for Monday Night Raw, which they put a ring on top of Titan Towers and had helicopters shooting it and all these different things going on. So while Nitro was actually taking place, everybody... At WWF, they're working, they're up on the roof, they're shooting this brand new open. Prior to that, we had a list of talent who was going to be in town for the open. One name that kept not appearing was Lex Luger. And the reason being was Lex's contract was coming up. And there were two different things. Is one had it expiring at one time and one had it expiring at another time, but it was something going on with J.J. Dillon, and, and there was a big controversy about Lex. But Lex continually, which Vince McMahon is often guilty of, took him at his word. No, boss, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for life. And that was good enough for Vince. And so we had Lex on there. Of course, Lex doesn't show up for the shoot. And next thing you know, he's showing up on Nitro, and I'm getting a phone call in Hong Kong from Pat Patterson. You would not believe who showed up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they had the Lex Luger on the show. Oh, my God. Good for them. Now they have him. <laughs> so it was shocking, but it was, in, in many ways, it was a relief, as Eric says. Like, hey, man, congratulations. Hell of a move. <laughs> but that was the beauty of the Monday Night Wars because there was a competition, but this was the first example of suddenly Lex is on, everyone's talking. Luger showed up, Luger showed up, Luger showed up. And it wasn't too long after that that Medusa dropped the women's title into the garbage can. Let's talk about that. That was because that was pretty close too. And this is another d defection from the WWF, and she comes with the title. Tell us about this. Lex Luger was the first step in creating that controversy and creating the buzz. 
doing things differently. Medusa was was a second move. You know, there may have been more, like giving away finishes and things like that. But, <laughs> but little the, guy beats big guy with the sidekick that the green belt. Yeah, but but Medusa, like you know, Medusa had been in WCW. I had no Medusa's going back to AWA days. We both started for Vern Gagne right about the same time. Um, Kurt Henning and all that, and she called me up and said, "Hey, you know, don't have a contract, you know, any chance I can come back?" Sure. She said, "What do I do with the belt?" <laughs> Bring it with you. We'll figure it out. <laughs> no. I knew what we were going to do with it. What did you think, or what was Vince's reaction, or the company's reaction when she dumped the title in the garbage can? Pissed. Yeah, pretty pissed. You know, because it was that one. That one even more so than Luger, because she was a champion, and she takes her intellectual property, the the, the belt itself, and drops it in a trash can on their TV show. So that one stung a little bit. It was an F you to the WWE, WWF. I mean, it was a real middle finger right up your ass. Oh, yeah. And I, and I know you, especially at the time. I mean, you've, we've all changed in the last 15, 20 years. But at the time, you probably got off on that and loved that. I ain't going to lie. The, the, the finger. You're a competitive the guy. The belt. <laughs> <laughs> but I got, I got to be honest with you. It, to me, yes, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Did you guys see, uh, I mean, obviously WCW is, is a competition. Did you have any feelings about Eric, like knowing this, this brash guy coming in, an announcer from AWA? Good looking son of a bitch, too. <laughs> Looked like John Davidson. <laughs> that's, that's old school. But, but what did you think about him personally? Because I'm sure you had an, an image of him in your head. Eric was this evil, conniving, lying, low-life son of a bitch that was stealing that was stealing our talent and trying to put us out of business and trying to take our livelihoods away from us. So, I mean, that was the perception without, you know, I mean, didn't know him, didn't want to know him. Yeah. And then what's your perceptions of, of the evil Vince McMahon, kind of the old-school family promoter? You know, I, like Bruce said, the only impressions I had of him are the ones that I got from people that worked for him. You know, the, you know, certainly Hulk told me a lot of things about Vince McMahon. So did everybody else that worked for him. And like Bruce said, when, when someone would leave WWF and come to work for me, how do you think they talked about Vince McMahon? <laughs> they didn't talk about the great things that he is and that he's done and continues to do, quite frankly. They didn't talk about that. They told yeah, me pissed off. Yeah, they, they tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, so that was my impression of him. Other than he was hugely successful, and I wanted to be more successful than him. That was it, though. I, I didn't really have a personal impression of him. Okay, let's talk about the the real uh, the, 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 the the balance shifting, which was, of course, the NWO, the beginnings of that. Hall and Nash jumping to uh, to Nitro and to WCW. Talk about the, the events that occurred to, to make that happen. I don't know if it's more on your end, Bruce. Why don't you talk about the final days of, of the click in the WWE? And first of all, talk about how much pull they had on the company. Because they were running the company in a lot of ways, from what I heard from, from an outsider's perspective. Especially in the locker room, more so than in the company. But in the locker room, the click definitely wielded a lot of power, influence. They were bullies and made life difficult if you weren't in favor with them. And 
there were rumblings about, you know, Razor wanting to leave and go to WCW, and he had been made this offer and so on and so forth. And then there were little rumblings about Diesel, and he's going to leave. And Sean was locked up. Sean couldn't go anywhere if he wanted to. Well, why would they want to leave? What was the problem? Well, because they got paid on what they drew. Okay, and so we didn't have guaranteed contracts. If you went in and you only drew a thousand people, you got paid on drawing a thousand people. And you know, I remember the guys coming up saying, "I'm the lowest paid WWF champion in history." Guess what? You're the lowest drawing WWF champion in WWF. History. That's Nash. You can say it the goes, name. It goes. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It goes hand. I'm not in saying hand anything that's hand. not documented. It is. It's I mean, true. It goes hand in hand. So if they're not paying to come see you, you're not going to reap the rewards on the other side. So there was a lot of that bitching and moaning going on. So to be able to go elsewhere where they had a guaranteed paycheck coming in every week, they knew what they were going to make and they were going to get that money whether they worked or not, versus go out and draw a house, go out and bust your ass, make people come in, make them come back, and earn your money. It was a, just a difference in philosophy. Okay, so they're mad about that, Eric. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of an exception to that one because what I was told, and I'm not going to name names if I can avoid it, but a lot of, when, when those guys came to me, when people would come to me, Yes, it was about the guaranteed contract. Let's not, I'm not going to kid anybody or myself. Yes, that was part of it. But the reason they didn't like the system is because it was discretionary. The formulas that were used and the percentages and the payouts were a little kabuki-ish at times. At least that's what I was told. And that nobody ever really knew what the formula was and the discretion sometimes was a little unfavorable to certain individuals. So, yeah, when they came to me, yes, they got guaranteed money. But wasn't that, for the most part, wasn't the real reason they came, or the only reason they came. A lot of the reasons they came to WCW was because they weren't on the road 300 days a year. They could make the same amount of money, maybe in some cases more, maybe in some cases not necessarily. But they were on the road 180 days a year as opposed to being on the road 300 days a year. And that had a lot to do with it. At least... That's what they told me at the time. Uh, and I'm not going to argue that point either because at the WWF, they, like I said, they had to work for their money and they had to go make the towns. You guys weren't running as many house shows as we were. That was our business. We had to be on the road. We were a touring company. We had to be out there uh, selling merchandise, selling out arenas and being able to get out to the people per se. But a lot of them, yeah, it was schedule, but it was money. But the same formula that Eric talks about being kabuki-ish, once the crowd, the houses started filling up, nobody was bitching about that formula when their checks started getting bigger because they were putting more asses in seats. That's not true. They did bitch about it. They well, bitched that, about it to me. <laughs> not after we were kicking y'all's ass that they stayed with us. <laughs> and Chris Jericho's coming over, everybody else. But no, it's 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 the same formula, and, and it's different. It's there's a big difference when everybody's making money than when business is down and not everybody's making money. Did they come to you, Hall and Nash? Did they call you? Um, actually, Hall and Nash both came to me through Diamond Dallas Page. And you cut the deal. Were they still under contract to, to WWE, or our contract is up in June? 
we want to talk to you about July 1st type of thing. Yeah, I think, I think it was that. Gotcha. I don't remember specifically, but I think that was it. Did you know that they were leaving specifically? This wasn't a surprise like Luger? No, we knew they were leaving. Gotcha. Yeah, we, we definitely knew they were leaving because we had gone to them with contracts. And frankly, the, the only one that Vince was really interested in, in keeping was Razor at the time. When, when you found out they're leaving, you know for sure that you're leaving, I mean, you're probably thinking, well, whatever. We own Diesel. We own Razor Ramon. What's he going to do? And then? Yeah, there was that thought. Tell us. What's that? You got it? Well, no, I, it, without a doubt, you know, we, we figured they had to come up with, with completely, different, completely different characters, completely different names. And WWF was a very big character-driven company at the time. I mean, it was... It was all characters. And so we figured whatever they do, they, they can't be Razor and they can't be Diesel. So when Scott Hall shows up on WCW and says, hey, yo, and does the toothpick, it's like, whoa, that's Razor Ramon. That's not Scott Hall. Because Scott Hall didn't say, hey, yo, and walk around with a toothpick until he came to the WWF and the Razor Ramon character was created for him. So that's where it became, they, they were using the characters that were created at the WWF with different names. Kind of. The, and look, this was litigated in federal court, okay? So I'm not going to sit here and try to defend something that some judge has already made a decision on. Nor, nor do I want to embarrass myself by trying to convince you guys otherwise. However, yes, we did use the, hey, yo, there's no question about that. But that really wasn't, going into it, that wasn't the intent. I, I, I don't ever recall sitting there going, okay, here's what we're going to do. I know you're not going to wear the same goofy shit that they had you wearing. <laughs> and we're not going to call you Razor Ramon. We're going to make you a cartoon character. But I do kind of want to hang on to that dialect because it's pretty cool. We didn't do that. Okay, but it, it did happen. The intent, I'm going to go back to the intent. Nitro had to be different. We didn't want to be, and, and Bruce was very kind, and partly because he was involved in it. Yes, it was a very character-driven show. In my opinion, it was a very cartoony show. The characters were very animated. And it worked, by the way. By the way, it was working phenomenally. But the, the, the show was targeted towards children. It was a younger audience. It was targeted towards the licensing and the merchandising business, which was smart. Okay, and we had to do it differently. So, one of the things that we did with Nitro is hey, let's just let the guys use your real names. We don't have to call them the garbage truck driver. He can just be Scott Hall. You know, he can just be Kevin Nash. But he did hang on to some elements of that character that came along with him. And yeah, judge made the decision. We were guilty of that. Where did you get the idea for NWO? Because this is yours. This is nobody else's idea but yours. The the idea for the NWO came to me. Over a period of time, it didn't. It wasn't like a light bulb going off in my head, but I had been over to Japan quite a bit and had just been amazed at the way business was conducted in in Japan. And we talked about this last night with, with Jim Ross a little bit. You know, in Japan at the time, going back into the early nineties, the press, the media, people looked at professional wrestling the same way they looked at soccer, you know, or or sumo. Uh, it was a, it, they treated it like real sports. You, know, you go to a big event, and it was on the front page of the sports page the following day. And I was trying to figure out a way to create that kind of reality or perception within our product. 
And I was just learning about the psychology, if you will, that took place in Japan at that time. And there was a lot of that invasion kind of uh, storylines. Company versus company. Yeah, it was company versus company. So that's where it came from, really. I wanted to create that. Can I interrupt for a sec? So you were trying to create they being them, the WWF, by taking characters that had been established there and saying they. Because you never said you never said WWF, and I know that. But it was like, well, who who are they fighting for? Who are they? And the perception from our vantage point was, was like WWF against WCW when Razor and Diesel came in. But the, and I'm not going to lie to you. that It wasn't like that thought didn't occur to me. But it really wasn't. The whole idea. Look, Scott Hall had been to WCW had, before we went to WWF. Same with Kevin Nash. The premise, in my mind, the, the largest part of that premise, was that these were guys that had been in WCW, were treated like shit, didn't make any money, were disrespected, went to the WWF, became big stars, and now they were coming back to get revenge. We're going to show you what happens when you treat us like shit. We're taking over. That was the premise. And yes, we were aware of the fact that certain people would think, oh, they would be curious as to see if there was going to be a war between WWF and WCW. Of course, we were aware of that. But that wasn't the driving force behind that idea. Was your original thought to have three guys? Or ten guys? Or two guys? Or one guy? No, it was it was three. I knew right off the bat we we're going to. Did you know you wanted to be raised? Uh, sorry, Hall, Nash, and Hogan. Well, the, the, yes, but it started out with Scott Hall. We knew we, we knew Kevin Nash was coming down the pipe. I wasn't sure who the third guy was going to be, but we knew there was going to be a third guy. Now, once again, at the time, this is another huge buzz in the business: Luger and Medusa and this. Were you guys feeling that it's starting to slip? through our fingers, or was it the classic Vince arrogance of, oh, whatever, who cares? On the outside, it was a classic Vince arrogance. Gosh, creativity will beat them every time. They're just copying us. Um, but there, there was a feeling of a lot of guys going that way, and people are starting to look at, well, wh- what am I really worth? And so now they're starting to bend the ear at WCW and say, hey, uh, got anything for me? And we weren't the big dogs, the only game in town anymore. And everybody was saying, well, you know what? If I don't work here, I could go there. And we didn't want anybody to go there, especially there. So I think there was a feeling, honestly, Matt, I think there was a feeling of we have to change. We have to look at the way we do business and reevaluate. So it was... There was a little, I hate to say the word fear, because it wasn't fearful. It was just, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. So tell us how Hogan became involved with the NWO. That was the missing piece that, be, that took it over the top. You know, I had gone to Seahawk. I know you guys have probably heard this and read this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that history too much. But in con- to keep it in context, I had gone to Hulk about a year or so before and tried to convince him to, to change his character got a kayfabe it's just my nature but um and he he politely showed me to the door you know he was very nice about it but he basically you know he stroked his fu manchu and and every time he stroked his fu manchu i know i was gonna get shown the door one way or the other he started stroking his fu manchu and said brother you'll never understand it until you walk a mile in my red and yellow boots you'll never really understand it 
okay. And then he went off to go do a movie. And in the meantime, Scott Hall happened, Kevin Nash happened, I was watching the audience react to it, and so was Hulk. He was off in California doing a movie called Santa with Muscles, actually. I'll never forget. <laughs> and I hadn't talked to Hulk in a you know, month or two or three. He was only doing four pay-per-views a year with us, and he would only do the TVs associated with those four pay-per-views. So I didn't really see him a lot. And I got a call from him. Saying, hey, brother, what are you doing? Come on out to L.A. I want to talk to you about what's going on. And I, I came to his trailer, drove out on location. We had a six-pack or a case of beer and a couple of Cuban cigars. And uh, he asked me, you know, who's the third guy? And I wouldn't tell him. He said, I don't know yet, because I didn't know for sure. And he goes, well, I know who it should be. Said, who's that? In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, please tell me you want to do this. And he volunteered, because he saw the momentum. He saw the opportunity. If it wasn't Hulk, did you have another guy in mind? Yeah, it was going to be Sting. Sting. Got a question? Yeah, I just wanted to go back. Early 96, there were the uh, Billionaire Pet skits. And it seemed like they started off somewhat lighthearted. It became a lot more personal with some of the controversial quotes from Turner and the legal action. You can sort of share your perspectives from the respective companies on those skits and why they became so intense as they went on. Well, the... And, it, and it's funny, people don't believe you when, when you talk about how ideas like that actually come to fruition. The guy that did the billionaire Ted skits, the guy that portrayed Ted Turner, David Sahadi, who was one of our producers, had met him at a party. He says, this guy does the best Ted Turner you've ever seen. <laughs> and he brings him in and introduces him to Vince. And Vince goes, God. Damn, we could do something with that. <laughs> and that's how Billionaire Ted, I mean, the, the initial seed happened. And they did start off like, okay, hey, you know, uh, here's Billionaire Ted. I know what I'd do. I'll buy me a wrestling company. I'll put it on whenever I want to, you know. And, and <laughs> they were still a little, they were still mean-spirited, no matter how you looked at it, man. You know, the nacho man, the huckster, skiing gene, his 900 line. But, but it was fair. It was cruel, but fair. We did an autograph session yesterday, and the, the, where we did the Monday Night Wars was playing in the background. I couldn't see it, but I could hear it. And I've seen it, you know, before. And I were talking about the Monday Night Wars show on the network? No, the DVD. The DVD, gotcha. The original one that came out. And I, and I can't remember now who it was that was talking. Oh, it was Mick Foley was talking about how pissed off, you know, or no, he didn't say pissed off. His exact words were, I think, you know, when Ted saw that, it lit a fire underneath him, implying that Ted was upset about it. Not true. I don't know how Mick would have ever known that Ted was upset, because I don't think Mick really hung out with Ted much. <laughs> But that was the impression that was given on that DVD, is that Ted Turner was really pissed off about the billionaire Ted skits. I can tell you that Ted Turner thought they were funny. <laughs> he got a kick out of them. He did not take it personally. Yeah. Which is why it went on so long. Yeah. God damn, this is great. This is <laughs> great shit. Good this is shit. great. Bruce, this is great. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 
21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, here we go. Back to the Monday Night Wars debate. Bischoff versus Pritchard continues. Let's talk about, you mentioned the, the Nacho Man and the Huckster and all that stuff as being the first shot back. Let's talk about another classic shot back towards EC, uh, WCW when you had DX uh, converge on the arena in Norfolk, uh, Virginia. It's a classic moment. If you guys don't know, uh, they basically showed up. It was on, on Raw, showing up at the WCW arena uh, in a tank, uh, trying to get into the arena. Let's, let's, let's tell that story, Bruce. Well, the... the and the backstory to that was we, we would have a, these production meetings before television and so on and so forth. And, and at that time, WCW had consistently just, I mean, man, they, they were kicking our ass at 80-some-odd weeks or whatever. And the question came up. It's like, you know, man, what do you do? When you got a giant, you know, and, of course, Vince was David and Ted Turner was Goliath. And what do you do? And, and it just said, well, you know, back in the old days, we'd go knock on their door. Meaning that in the old days of territories, if somebody came into the area that you promoted and started promoting their own shows, you'd go to their show with your toughest guy, show up in the arena and challenge them and call them out. Now, being in the 1990s, you don't just show up <laughs> and, and call people out and have fights out in the middle of the street. But the perception of that could be kind of cool. And we were, uh, they were in Norfolk, and we were in Hampton. And so we went down and had a tank and uh, went and declared war, firing the first shot at WCW. They declared war on us, so we were declaring war back on them. We had the chief of police with us as our security and, and had his police helping us out told us what we could do and what we couldn't do. The chief of police of Norfolk? Yes. <laughs> Can't yes. imagine somehow the influence hey. involved in that one. <laughs> yes, he did. And so, uh, you know, and so I'm like, okay, what can we do? What can't we do? He goes, I'm goddamn chief of police. You can do anything you want to. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I also, had, I also had an attorney in Pittsburgh telling me, Bruce, whatever you do, don't do this, 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 this. So we just went there and, and uh, you know, made some noise and got noticed and got WCW fans wearing WCW gear coming in, chanting DX, chanting WWF. You're filming this as people oh, are coming in. shot the every bit of it. And then the coup de grace, we're asking people, hey, how much did you pay for your tickets? They're all saying, hey, got them free, got them free. But the, the best part of all is we're sitting there, my cameraman, Tim Walbert, who also directed for us. And he says, Bruce, check out the marquee. And we're watching the marquee, and it says, WCW Nitro tonight, free tickets. <laughs> now, and no editing. That, was, that is exactly how the marquee read. So we show that, and that's the first thing that we show that night on, on Raw. WCW Nitro, free tickets. And a quick story just going forward, in the lawsuit... I'm sitting being deposed. And the attorney for WCW is saying, okay, when you edited this footage, I said, we didn't edit the footage. I said, you're looking at raw footage. And he swore up and down. He knew that we edited that footage. 
Now, if you were to stay with the footage a little longer, you would see it said free tickets, garden show, Sunday. <laughs> but he's, and he's saying, and I said, wait a minute. I said, how can you tell me, because I've got, I, we have people. So lies by omission are okay. Well, no, 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 no. Oh, we yeah, had, yeah, we yeah. had people, we had people coming in, coming into the arena, asking them, and it, we had all raw footage. No one telling these people what to say. How'd you get your tickets? I got them free. I got them over here, and it was on the marquee. So again, it's war. It, yeah, the little guy kicks the big guy with the sidekick. Okay, <laughs> so it was true. I know we got some questions. There. We got some very. <laughs> Excited people over here that want to ask, but I want to, I'm going to make this short. But we're, when we talk about perceptions on the other side of the equation while things are going on, let me give you my perception. One is I fired Waltman, who was, in my opinion, you know, whether it's a movie or a band or anything else, it's not just the front guy, it's not just the front man, it's the band. If it's a movie, it's not just the star, it's the cast, the supporting cast. And Waltman, I didn't give him as much credit as I should have at the time, or I wouldn't have let him go. Waltman really made DX feel real. It enhanced the concept of them coming over to us because it was the very attitude of NWO. And quite frankly, we had talked, Kevin, I, Scott, John to a degree, a number of other people had talked for many times, months before the DX angle, months before Waltman left, about doing kind of the same thing, not with a tank and dressed up like army men and that kind of shit, but we had talked about showing up at a Raw live and kind of taking over. We had gone so far as if Zane Breslov, you may remember, try to find a way to buy ringside seats, hard camera, so they couldn't sh- not shoot us. So the whole idea of crashing somebody else's show, from my perspective, even though it may not be 100% true, the, perspe- the perception was that this is ripping off, A, they're ripping off the attitude that had been kicking her ass for a year or more. Number two, they're doing it with a guy that, well, Sean Waltman, who was part of that process, and they're kind of taking an idea that we really came up with. In fact, we had talked to Vince Russo over the phone about coming into WCW, and that was part of the, the phone conversation. Yeah, well, I, it's nothing that hadn't been done, though, going back to the 50s as, as far as wars and guys showing up at other promotions, and, that, and that's the tactic that we were taking and, and looking at it that way. And Waltman coming in, and that was his, I believe, his first appearance on Raw, too, as well. So we capitalized on that. Shawn Michaels was out. Shawn Waltman and his X-Pac was in. And so it was new. It was fresh. And, hey, it was and it was, it was awesome. all fair game. It was actually it was awesome. So, so, so you're inside the arena. You're doing whatever you're doing, taking notes or putting together the show. And who comes and tells you, uh, Eric, uh, we have a problem? You know, I, and I wish I remembered specifically that moment in time because I would love to go back and do it over again <laughs> if I ever had the opportunity. I'm not really sure, but I think I was actually in the ring when that was happening. I think I was doing a segment in the ring, if I remember. Were you filming during Nitro? Or did you film earlier in the day? Both. Okay. Both. We had, we had been out there uh, before their show started, but I th- they started an hour before. So I'm pretty sure that when we went down, because we weren't going to go down the, the tunnel. There's a tunnel that goes to the arena. And, and there's a big overhead door. And we weren't going to go down there because every time that we would drive by, they'd shut the door. And so we're like, okay. And, and uh, Nash and Luger 
were late coming in and they were like calling Hunter trying to say, hey man, are you on top of a tank in front of our building? And, and it's like, yeah, come on over. And, uh, and they were late. Uh, but anyway, we went by and we, we just kept going by, kept going by, kept going by. And all of a sudden it's like that door's open and they didn't shut it this time. So we just took a right turn and went on down and they shut the door in our face and, and everything. And, uh, you know, there was, there's always the talk of what if that door opened and Ming was standing there? Haku. Yeah. I know my pants would have been a different color, but you know, there, did, there's did you ever we consider, huh? did you ever consider opening the door? Or what did I, you think? I didn't really know about it until after it had happened. And I, that's why I'm, and I'm sitting here trying to remember, where exactly was I standing when I first heard that? I think I was in the ring, and by that time, security, Doug Dillinger, I think, had pretty much taken control of the situation. I was hearing it most likely in an IFB, or unless somebody came up to me and told me you know, while I was in the ring. And it was kind of being taken care of, and I didn't really have time to think about it very much, but I, I, I wished I would have had an extra five minutes. I really do. And then, then we fast forward two weeks to when we went to the CNN Tower. First, we went to the offices in Smyrna with a tank. And I think I told this on your radio show. I wish I had the 911 call because the guy from WCW calls and says, Yeah, we're being attacked with weapons. They've got tank and they've got, they're armed. They've got weapons. And all of Smyrna's finest descend and they come out guns drawn on us. We've got it on tape. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is great television. <laughs> but I, ha- I did have Smyrna cops as my security for that, too, but he hadn't told his boss. The Smyrna didn't have the chief. Did y'all? I don't think they had one. But they, you know, were, were there, and, and he told me to go to the airport, one of those, don't pass go, don't collect your $200, get out of town. <laughs> and we did after we stopped at CNN Center. <laughs> So those were fun. Those were a blast. Can you imagine the legalities or just the awesome moment in television if you would have said, open the door? You know, what, and that's, that's one of my biggest regrets. Like, what, would, what would you have done? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, but it would have been some of the greatest television in the history of wrestling television. And that's the one, you know, people ask me, what's, what's your biggest regret? Well, first of all, I don't have a lot of regrets because I don't live in the past. You can't change things that, you know, happened five years ago or five minutes ago. It's, it's over. It's done. You can learn from it and you move on. But if there was one thing that I could change, I would have to put that right up on the list. I would have loved to let them in only because of the confrontation. And I, I don't expect it would have ever gotten physical because everybody was too smart for that. And the guys like Ming and, and the people that could fit Finley and people that were kind of dangerous people, they weren't going to go there. They're not defending their company. But it would have been some freaking good television. Well, it would have been good for a while, and then it probably would have ended up sucking because no one would have done anything. Yeah, what like, what would you have done? Like, hey, you, exactly. get out of here. We'll make us get out of here. And then, like, you know, ten minutes is just sitting there, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Tell us about this fake diesel and fake razor. Who's, whose idea was that? I will give him 100% credit, Jerry McDivitt. The Did you think it would work? It wasn't to work. The idea behind it wasn't necessarily for it to work and be successful, the idea behind it was to prove that we own those intellectual properties. That we own diesel and we can take anybody that we want, give them a Spanish accent, have them flick a toothpick, dress them up and call them Razor Ramon because by God we own that property. So, so the, the idea was to, to, to prove a legal point yeah. to create horseshit television? Oh. 
<laughs> it would have had to improve a lot to just be horseshit. <laughs> it was. That's what you get for letting an attorney book your show, brother. <laughs> yeah, it was. He can't even it debate rough. it. It was. Wow, man. Yeah. Okay, next question. <laughs> Let's talk about another of the pivotal moments in the Monday Night Wars, which was the Montreal screw job and Brett leaving uh, WWE and coming to WCW, which was huge at the time because Brett was, if not the most popular wrestler in the WWE, top two or three uh, at the time. What were your discussions with Brett? What led to Brett leaving in the first place? I know it's been talked about for years, but I want to hear it. And since I'm up here, that's the question that I'm asking. Do <laughs> you want to go first person? I had, and again, I'm, I don't recall dates. Specifics. Specifics. But I had had a conversation with Brett about a year previously, I believe. A year and a half. We got along great with Brett. I think I met him in L.A. We met at a hotel. And just, I liked him. I just, he just felt like a real down-to-earth person to me. And he obviously was a great performer and a great character. I, I, I looked up to him in that respect. And we, we got along really well, but for whatever reason, we just we didn't do a deal. And it wasn't you know because I didn't offer him enough money. There was it, there was no it wasn't there was no animosity or tension. It was just we we agreed that it was probably not a good opportunity, and we went our separate ways. And then we started talking again. I don't remember if he called me or I called him. He probably would have called me by that time because I was getting my ass kicked legally for a lot of other things that I had been doing. So by that time, I was very cautious about infringing in any way uh, on WWF contracts. So I would assume Brett called me and we met again and we talked. We talked over the phone a lot and he decided to make the move. And I remember I was in Wyoming when I had the conversation. I actually remember exactly where I was standing when I was on the phone with him. And he asked me about bringing a belt, and, and should I bring that with me? And I said, not necessary. And it was, well, what if, what if they want me to drop the belt? Do you drop the belt? It's okay. You're Bret Hart. You're not Bret Hart the belt. You're Bret Hart. People will still know who you are and respect you and, and want to watch you, whether you have the belt or not, or you drop it in a man. It didn't matter to me. Um, but that was the thing. You didn't think about... You know, considering that you'd done that already with Medusa about having Brett come on TV with the WWF title? No, we could, we, by that time we were engaged in federal gotcha. litigation and uh, copyright infringement and all kinds of other crap. Even if I would have wanted to do it, I would have an army full of attorneys from Turner Broadcasting that would have stomped a mud hole in me. Brett, he did. Uh, Eric, they had talked like a year before, and it was at a time when Brett's contract was coming up. Vince offered Brett a very lucrative contract. The paying him the most money of anybody he'd ever paid before in the history of the company. And as he got into it, Brett wasn't happy. And it, it, it went on and on and on. And then it got to the point where Vince was paying him so much money and looking at this going, I can't continue to do this anymore. And he went to Brett and he said, look, if the deal's still on the table for WCW or if you want to use me is leverage for WCW. Go, you have my blessing to go back to them, get the best deal that you can, and um, you know, tell them you're in a bidding war. Whatever you want to do, and so that's how the the second one of Brett actually leaving came about on the WWF side. But Brett going into Montreal, it just was a difficult time. The 
the animosity between Brett and Sean at the time, and going back and forth debating what we were going to do for that finish. And Vince deciding, you know, whatever the night before, and told very few people and, and did what he needed to do because he, he wasn't confident. Did you know about it? Chance. Did you know about it, Bruce? No. No. So you were surprised as everybody. I was just sitting there with Davey Boy and Owen, and Davey looking at the monitor going, they just fucked him. <laughs> Owen, Owen, they fucked him. <laughs> what, what do we do? Bruce, let me ask you, if, if Vince would have known, I don't mean to take no. over the monitor, if Vince would have known, because there's no way he could have gotten inside of my head and known the pressure mm. I was under legally, he wouldn't have been able to know that I, there was no. I told Brett uh, not to worry about the belt. Do you think he would have done it anyway? If he would have known that I had no intention to to, to use that or to take the belt, you think yeah, he because he needed. He that was Brett's last night, and he needed the belt needed to change hands from Brett to Sean storyline wise, to to do everything that we wanted to do with Austin and everybody going forward. That needed to happen. And just to have Sean win it some other way, and, and it, it took on a life of its own afterwards and got even better. But, yeah, I think he, would have, he still would have done it because Brett, I don't know that Brett was, he wasn't really rational at the time in a lot of respects. He had so much shit going on in his head. And, and I think if Brett were the Brett of 10 years before, never would have gotten to that point. Here's an interesting question. What was your perspective that when you heard about it? We've never heard from your side. You know you've got this guy coming in, one of the biggest names in the business, and hear about the, the Montreal screw job. I actually heard about it from Rick Rude about five minutes after it happened. Rick Rude was in the locker room, I believe, or near it, and knew that Brad had knocked out Vince or whatever he did, dropped him. And Rude was pissed. Rude was pissed that they... That they Screwed Brett. Rick Rude called me and said, can I come to work tomorrow for you? And then he told me what happened. I was shocked, but it didn't affect the way I looked at anything. It didn't affect the way I looked at Brett. It didn't affect the way, the, the way I thought we would be able to utilize Brett because I, I wasn't dependent upon him winning and keeping the belt coming over as the former champion anyway. So in many respects, it didn't matter from that perspective. But the fact that they did it the way they did it, I was pretty shocked that it would happen. Let's talk quickly about Rick Rude, the only guy that ever appeared on Raw and Nitro on the same night. And that's why. Big pop for that. Yeah, it was live. Yeah. You guys take it. Yeah. It, it WWE was, was taped. We, we taped show. Taped. Nitro was live. And Rick Rude and Sean and, and everybody, because Rude stayed and did TV. And we had Rude and, and Sean and Hunter and everybody uh, opening up our show and new champion, blah, blah, blah. And we, they started an hour before us. We did live, live voiceovers in the studio. So we had Nitro on in the studio. And there's Rick Rude. <laughs> and it's like, well, fuck. <laughs> and at that point, you know, what could you do? I think Vince made a comment about, you know, if you think you're seeing double, something like that. But it was, hey, man, hats off. That was a good one. 
You must have loved that. That was a good one. I did. It, it, yeah, I did. It fell right in that same category as giving away finishes and starting five minutes before them and dropping titles and trash and all kinds of other crazy stuff that was fun at that time. But yeah, I did. I liked it. Because even better was he shaved his beard, too. So he had a bearded rude and non-bearded rude at the same time. I forgot time. about that, but yeah. Yeah, at the same time. I remember it was so crazy. The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. All right, back to Eric Bischoff versus Bruce Pritchard and the amazing Monday Night Wars debate. So much momentum for, for WCW at this point in time, and I believe we were discussing it earlier. It was either 81 weeks, 88 weeks, something in the 80s, over a year uh, and a half of, of WCW destroying Raw. And then, you know, Rude, or Brett leaves, and even little, like, little things like Rude leaving, because everybody was leaving. And Eric would hire them. We used to laugh as like, if you worked for Vince, Eric will hire you. Virgil shows up, and Michael Wall, uh, Wall Street is there, and <laughs> Brian Adams is there, and Neidhart is there, and Davey shows up, and you know everybody's coming over. Are you guys reeling right now? Uh, did you think, like, what can we do? What's going to happen? How low can we go? What's going on in the, in the office at this point? Around the Montreal Screwjob time? Because well, that, that was at the point where WWE, I think, was at its lowest, because everybody now... Can't wait to go to WCW. Well, yes and no, but see, also what was happening, television-wise, we were getting our ass kicked. But in the arena business, we were packing them in. Merchandising, we were packing them in. Success begets success. And with Nitro's success, just that helped us even more. Because wrestling was hot again. And so they, while they were kicking our ass in the ratings, and they were, I mean, they were just stopping a mud hole in us underneath that 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 arena business and all the other ancillaries they were they were growing and it was it was really good but montreal there was it was kind of afterwards it was like a fresh beginning in many ways because you had brett kind of last hold out to go to wcw um you had sean who Really didn't um, have his he didn't have his buddies anymore, you know. Scott and Big Kev were gone, and all he had was Hunter, and Hunter wasn't the political powerhouse he is now. And Sean was on his Sean knew that at WrestleMania that year he was gone, he was done, and he was going to go away. So. Underneath all that, there was this groundswell of younger guys and guys that hadn't had as much TV time and time that were getting noticed. And you had this guy, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was getting red hot. And then the big turning point was the baddest man on the planet. Mike Tyson shows up on Raw. And we just had momentum. We just started gaining momentum once we took a commentator, historically for the WWF, his entire career, and said, hey, folks, he's the owner of the company. And Bret Hart punched him out in the locker room. 
And he sits there with his pale black kind of eyes. Like, kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. And he sits there with his pale black eyes and says, Brett screwed Brett. It does. You're right. Because we realized we had to change. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's make some changes here. Do something different. Bruce, if I can, I'm going to go back and to answer in part the question you asked, because it just occurred to me as you guys were talking, to, to put it in context, to put Brett in context, in, in this, what he was going through and what we were faced with, I was in Los Angeles the night Owen died. We were scheduled to do Jay Leno the following day. Brett was on his way to, to L.A. to meet me to do the Leno show so I could push him. I heard about Owen while I was at the hotel on a phone call because I couldn't watch Peter Perfuto Hotel. Heard about it. I went to the airport to meet Brett because he was literally in the air. And I was thinking, oh, I have to tell Brett what happened because he's in an airplane. How's he going to get the news? It was before you could, you know, they didn't have wireless on planes back then. That's how our relationship started. That's where Brett started with WCW. So that's, that was the starting point, just to put that in context. And what Bruce is saying, that's also when we started feeling the power shift. When, when that situation happened with Brett and it got physical and then he brought Vince out and all of a sudden he's no longer just the announcer you know, with a padded suit. He's the owner and it was Mike Tyson and it was Steve Austin. Oh, I said, oh shit, we're in trouble now. Did you think at any point in time that, that you would take over the business and, and maybe not put WWE out of business, but be the all-time number one company and become the new Vince? Like, this is, we're going to beat them forever. This is, this is what's going to happen. First of all, I never really saw myself in that position. I, I ne- it was never my goal. My goal, I, go, going all the way back, my goal was never, I never had a goal to get into the wrestling business. It kind of happened. It was a coincidence. And once I did, I was so grateful just to have a job, number one, and a job in the wrestling business. I didn't aspire to be a Vince McMahon or a Vernagani or anything. It just all kind of happened. But once I got, once we got to where we did with Nitro and with WCW, um, that was really inexperience in me kind of really manifest because I never consciously thought, oh, this is going to last forever. This is easy. I never thought that. Um, but I also never realized how fickle success can be and how quickly it can turn on a dime. I thought we were there. We had support. We had the audience. The formula was working. I really didn't have a sense that it could end in a month or six months or a year. So what was it, that, in your opinion, that, that caused it to end after 80-some-odd weeks of being on top? What was it that started the, the fall? There was, it, it, there's never one thing. You know what I mean? It's a, it, it's a combination of many, many, many things. Some of it my fault. Some of it just, you know, inexperience. Some of it bad choices. Um, but a lot of it had to do with things that didn't have anything to do with me. It, it had to do with AOL Time Warner. It had to do with the fact that Ted Turner was no longer in control of Ted Turner's company. The biggest advocate, the only reason that Nitro ever happened was because of Ted Turner. And Ted Turner didn't know that they were pulling the rug out from under Ted Turner. I didn't realize that executives within the, the Turner organization were picking sides from uh, whether they wanted to be on this side of the Time Warner camp or they wanted to be over here with Turner, or now do they want to be over here with AOL? There was just so many things going on at the time, including my own mistakes, that really led to 
what, what it led to. In your opinion, Bruce, what led to WWE taking over finally, taking the lead? I think uh, adapting a more realistic viewpoint of the business and, and trying some things. And, and without a doubt, the character Mr. McMahon that evolved, it, going in doing that interview with Brett Screwed, Brett, there was no intention of, of a Mr. McMahon character to come out of that at all. But Vince never, Vince was the kind of guy that he put blinders on, he was an announcer. And no one, nobody knows that I own the goddamn company but you. <laughs> so, yeah, and then he was a little out of touch. <laughs> but, you know, that, that was not the intent with that particular interview. And it grew. And Vince would walk out in arenas to go host Raw, and people booed the shit out of him. I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. And so but it, Vince was supposed to be a baby face. And Vince, you know, he saw himself as, oh, I'm the play-by-play play guy. And when the stuff happened with Tyson, it just organically happened. And Austin and Vince had a chemistry that I think has been unmatched by anybody. That yeah. we got momentum. And then we took over, and he poured gas on it. Tyson was a big part of that. Did you ever try and get Tyson? No. Here's one more thing I want to bring up. Do you remember when you challenged Vince McMahon to a fight in the middle of the Oh, yeah. That was awesome. He came down from the rafters on a motorcycle like this with his feet on the thing. and just like, you know, from what I recall, and you're like, we win so many weeks in a row. It's not even hard anymore. And you challenged Vince to a fight. Uh, What did Vince think about this? Vince just looked at it as a desperate, you know, desperate attempt to, to try and, you know, get something by mentioning his name. You know, there, there were the jokes of whether or not he should just actually go and show up and so on and so forth. And, uh, but, no, nah, he never really took it seriously. He just thought it was wow. a... It was funny because, I mean, that was... And it, it, to a degree, he was right. I mean, we were, you know, Waltman had gone over. It was following the DX thing. I wouldn't say we were desperate because the numbers didn't reflect the need to be at that point, but clearly shit had started to shift a little bit. And it was, in, in some ways, I guess you could say it was desperate. Um, but I remember Hulk Hogan saying, brother, you don't want to do that. At first I told him this is what I'm going to do. And he goes, oh, that's great, brother. That's going to be great. And then as we got closer to the date, he said, maybe you, th- you need to think about that because you don't know Vince McMahon the way I know Vince McMahon. And I, and I didn't. You know, I just looked at him, he's a big guy, he wears a suit, how tough can he be? And, and I didn't really care about that. that when I get my, I've had my ass kicked so many times in my life, get in line, it's no big deal. And if I would have been able to get my ass kicked by Vince McMahon on a pay-per-view, I'd have taken that ass kick in once a week for 52 weeks. <laughs> so that part didn't bother me, but you know, there were some people that were a little bit concerned, and I was hoping he would show up. I was ready for it either way. <laughs> one quick question, um, talking about kind of one of the demises of WCW. I had Hulk Hogan on my, my podcast. Talk is Jericho, available now. <laughs> it's free. It's free. I asked him what he thought that the uh, one of the reasons why WCW kind of fell off, and he mentioned because he thought that the NWO got too watered down in the fact that at one point there was a red NWO, there was a Latino NWO, there was an NWO with Virgil was in it. I mean, it was just everybody that came from WWE got thrown in the NWO. Do you agree with that statement? Um, How do you feel about that? Um, 
Yes and no. I mean, I mean, as far, was it a bad idea? Of course, yes. How could you look back at it now and go, okay, well, you probably shouldn't have diluted it as badly as you did. That goes without saying. But I honestly don't think that the result, the future of WCW, would have been any different had we not done those things. Because it wasn't, it was, I don't think it was one of those things, one of those various things that were responsible for the demise of, of NWO, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Just a few last questions. What to you was the, um, the end of the wars? When did the Monday Wars end? Wow. Um, I guess, you know, you look at the momentum of, of Tyson and, and, and WWF taking over winning, okay, and then not looking back. But the war was still going on. They were still still competing. Eric was still challenging Vince. And, you know, there were still guys jumping back and forth here and there. But I, I think in a big respect, probably around the time that Russo went there. Because at that point, they lost, they lost all vision. They lost, they lost any movement forward that they might have had. And it stopped, and then they... I think they sent Russo home, and then they, they, there were so many different people in charge, one right after the other, that at that point, I think it was all over. They didn't have any chance of coming back. How about you? I saw the incoming in 98. I, I, I had a really sick feeling in the pit of my stomach that it was over, but for me, the end happened emotionally, mentally, Probably March, April '99. I, I think that was about the time. I don't remember the month really, but there was about the time I remember. I was in my office. I was, I was just exhausted. You know, not only trying to figure out a way to fix the product and manage a company that had, you know, 100 employees and, and all the things that go along with that. It was mentally and emotionally. I was I was fighting corporate. I had a massive. I had a much nastier battle going on with Turner executives and the changes that were, re- were, were being required of us than I had tried to fix the show. And I was beat. And I remember Kevin Nash sitting in my office with me. And I, I couldn't come up with a good idea to save my life. And I was ready to just throw in a towel. And that's what Kevin said, look, let me take over creative for a while. And, and, and you know, people can say whatever they want. He didn't, add, he didn't do it because he wanted to be that guy. He did it because he saw I was completely out of gas. There was no freaking hope for me at that moment. But that's when I knew I was, it was over for me. All right, one more question. This better be the best question of the day. Who's got the best question? If you don't think it's the best question, put your hand down right now. All right, I see a guy over here in a pink shirt. He's got confidence. Was there any ideas that never saw the light of day? when you guys are trying to one-up each other? Great question. Um, I'll, I'll give you a second, first. I've got one that's on the tip of my tongue. And you'll appreciate this, because it involves Kiss and Gene Simmons. <laughs> the reason I brought Gene in, when I did the way I did, was because the plan was, on December 31st, 1999, to have a pay-per-view in Tempe, Arizona, at the, uh, what's a college football championship they have there every year? But it, Sun Bowl. And the game was going to be on, uh, it was either January 1st, or, I think it was January 1st. We were going to do the event from the Sun Dome and time it in such a way that the finish was going to come East Coast time at 11.59.59. Okay? 
One, two, three. Happy New Year. Yeah. yeah. That was because if you remember, it's hard to remember this now, but back then people were kind of semi-seriously thinking, oh, my God, the world's going to come to an end. Computers are no longer going to work. You know, power grids are going to go down. It was going to be this huge, you know, thing. Y2K. Yeah. And it, exactly. That's where I got it. And the, the idea was to have KISS at one end of, this, of the stadium performing and then a match, and then a song, and then a match, and a song and a match. That was why we brought them in. And that was the idea of, of going, how do, we, how do we pull the nose up on this son of a bitch? We've got to do something big. And that was the big that we were going to try to do. Um, and believe it or not, the reason it never happened was mostly because a lot of production people, they didn't work for me. They, did, they worked for Turner Broadcasting. They didn't work for Eric Bischoff or WCW. It didn't want to work. They didn't want to work, number one, over a holiday, and then, because they would have to go in a week early or five days early, start setting up. They didn't want to be flying anywhere on December 31st, 1999. And they just refused, basically, to do because it. Because they were worried that the world was going to end or whatever? They just, wow. didn't, they just didn't want to do it. Was there originally supposed to be four KISS members? Because you had the KISS demon. Was Gene's plan to have a star child and a spaceman and a cat man? No, I do, we did. I remember the first time I met Gene. I'm going to tell a real quick story because I know we want to wrap this up. But I, I met Gene in, at the Beverly Hills Hotel in, in Beverly Hills. And I don't remember how I got set up and who reached out to who. I, I just don't. But I walked in. If you've been in the Beverly Hills Hotel, right? Big. It's where all the Hollywood yuckety yucks meet and, you know, big wigs. And I walked into the bar, I don't know, bar restaurant area. And Gene was sitting in a booth by himself. And he had an entire. He had merchandise stacked from the floor to the <laughs> ceiling be- behind the table. And there was Gene Simmons sitting there. And I think Gene did have some ideas of introducing characters and extending his license you know, within the wrestling community. So I, I do recall having some of those conversations, but I don't remember how far any of them really went. You could have had Kiss versus the Blood Runs Cold, guys. That would have worked. <laughs> Bruce, did you think of anything? You know, the only one I can really think of is, is you know, it's kind of those what if type deal and during the time when we were negotiating with with brett hulk's contract with wcw was also coming due and they had an option to either match any offer so on and so forth going back and forth and hulk had expressed interest in coming back and the idea was one of basically it would have been hulk being the guy to take the title and hulk kind of passing the torch to steve at WrestleMania, but like Hulk kind of heading up the, the DX, if you will, group in, in that way, going that way. And it was, it was all the creative of it. The creative You're saying of it. Hogan was going to be the head of DX? Well, again, the, the creative of it wasn't completely fleshed out. That was an the, idea, though. The, that was an idea, yeah, to, to kind of get us to where we needed to go. It Suck it, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Two words for you. But, I mean, that, that was something in negotiations just, just kind of broke down in, in the middle, and it didn't go, go much further than that. And, and I know we're, we're going to wrap up so you guys can go see the Royal Rumble, but I, I do have to share something with you. Um, Eric and I started talking uh, a few months ago, and we talk every once in a while, and, and whenever we would have a few beers, we would talk about business, what have you, and everything. And we each have, as you can see, different viewpoints on the business and what happened during those times. Doesn't make one right or one wrong. It's just different. And we were on different sides. 
And he had the idea. He says, man, he goes, well, we took this on the road. He goes, this could be something else. And this was a germ of an idea that we talked about on the phone, made a couple phone calls, and this happened. And I cannot tell you just how truly overwhelmed and humbled I am to be sitting here today and to have this many people come out in this God-forsaken weather and, and listen to us tell our stories and, and, and share some of the things that we've been through in a business that, that I truly love and am very passionate about. And then to have Chris Jericho, upon hearing about the idea, volunteer his services to come and be a part of this Man, we were blown away. And I want to thank Chris. I want to thank Eric. Most importantly, I want to thank you guys for coming out. This has been a blast. Thank you very, very much. Final thoughts? I'm, I'm sick of hearing my own voice at this point, so I'm sure you are too. But I, I reiterate everything Bruce just said times two. Chris, thank you very, very much. Very much. All right, man, that was so much fun. I had a blast moderating the Monday Night Wars debate with Eric Bischoff, Bruce Pritchard. It was great to reconnect with both those guys. Both of them very, very cool. Uh, had a great time. We did that in Philadelphia at Dave & Buster's the afternoon of the Royal Rumble. My thanks to them and all of you who came out there to be, uh, be there in person. It was a packed house, and people loved it. Now you guys get a chance to hear it here on Talk is Jericho. Always got you back, all right? And speaking of having your back, you want those flowers? Those of you still waiting to hear how you can win the $50 gift card to Pro Flowers, all you need to do is hit me up on that Twitter at TalkIsJericho. Give me three words that describe your mom or your wife, if she's a mom, and use the hashtag ProFlowers, okay? At TalkIsJericho, hashtag ProFlowers. Don't forget that hashtag, ProFlowers. Two lucky people who send that tweet and use that hashtag will get a $50 gift card to Pro Flowers delivered to your door, okay? That's what I do for you, okay? Also, what I do for you is I rock. And tonight in Atlanta, Johns Creek, we are playing 37 Main. You can still get your tickets at FozzyRock.com. That's going to be a great, great show. Tomorrow, April 25th, Fozzy in Jacksonville for the Welcome to Rockville Fest. Then... In May, we're doing some gigs with Slash. That's going to be a blast. Concord Music Hall in Chicago on the 18th. 21st at Stubbs in Austin. 22nd in Beaumont, Texas on our own. 23rd House of Blues, Houston. 24th, the Southside Ballroom in Dallas. Go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket information and VIP info. And then the Big Daddy on October 30th. We're going to Kiss Cruise 5 with Kiss. Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and Fozzie. It's a match made in rock and roll heaven. We're sailing from Miami to Jamaica with Kiss, Steel Panther, Lita Ford. It's going to be the place to be. If you don't have tickets yet, and if there's tickets still available, go down, check it out. Kiss will be playing a live in its entirety, and we'll be playing three full 75-minute sets over the course of those three days, so it's going to be amazing. Uh, thank you if you're going to come. Thank you for listening. I know there's thousands of podcasts for you to schwaz from. I appreciate you, schwaz and mine. And I'd like to thank you for uh, checking out our sponsors, Pro Flowers, Arctic Ease, Instant Cold Wraps, DDP Yoga, True Car. You need to download the True Car app right now. Remember that so you don't waste valuable weekend time going from dealership to dealership in search of the perfect car for you. Why waste hours searching when you can check out True Car on the True Car mobile app in five minutes.
experience, not only build the car you want, but also find out what others paid for it. And then with True Car, you can lock in guaranteed savings, usually over three grand off of MSRP. So that is a good bargain for you. We have so many other ways to spend the weekends, right? Go hang out with your families, go to concerts, barbecues, sit by the pool, go to the beach. I don't want you to waste your time uh, hunting for a car. True Car and the True Car mobile app can do that hard work for you. We know how much we need our cars, right? How else are you going to get to work or school? You need to have that transportation. True Car can help you win back your weekend by getting you a car cheaply and quickly. Save time, save money, save us Y2J, and never overpay. Download the True Car app today. All right. Thank you for listening. Do your shopping through the Amazon links. Don't forget, you go to podcast1.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcast Free banner at the top of the page. You click on Talk is Jericho. If you're in the UK, the USA, or Canada, every time you do that, Amazon kicks back some cash. So we keep doing this for you for free. No extra fees, no hidden challenges. You're just helping me out and helping out the show. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks to Eric Bischoff, Bruce Pritchard, Wise, Cousin Chad, Yoko Ono, Paul McCartney, Billy Joe Armstrong, everybody else. Thanks to all of you. We'll see you next week. Stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. Uh, next Wednesday. Have you heard of a little broadcast legend named Larry King? Yeah, Larry King and his wife, Sean King, will be here on Talk is Jericho. If that doesn't give us some some, uh, credibility in the mainstream news, I don't know what will. I've known Larry for years. He's a great guy. He has some amazing stories. He will be here on Wednesday along with a review of Fastlane with a special guest. Stick around. We'll see you soon. And a big, yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcastone.com. 